Happy uh, January 24th, 2020, gang. Welcome to the Sidebar. We got an incredible show today. A lot of focus on the arts. And I know the LGBT people, we love the arts. So let me tell you who's coming on today. We're going to start with the executive director of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, Christopher Dugo, who's in studio today with us. and be talking about all the accolades that they're winning for their documentary film, Down in the Deep South. And, of course, San Francisco, they just purchased a, a building for all arts organizations up in the Bay Area, LGBT and otherwise, I think. Actually, I'm not positive about that. We'll learn from Chris when he comes on the show. And then that'll be followed by the mayor of Palm Springs, Jeff Kors, will be calling in. Uh, they just went to a rotating mayor system. He is the first mayor in rotation. And he'll be talking about aging in place out in the desert. And, of course, all the arts festivals that they have out there in the Palm Springs area. And then the incredible surrealist, uh, Lori Lipton, uh, who, in my mind, is the new Salvador Dali. She has the most macabre and grotesque drawings, and I love them. I just think they're so disturbing. I love watching, looking at her work. Just did a documentary about her life called Love Bite, and uh, I'll be talking to her about that. And then finishing up the show, Beatrice Velasquez is coming in from Equal. California to talk about census 2020 and why LGBT people should care one way or the other. So that's what we're going to be doing today. A little bit of focus on the arts, but also our usual politics because art and politics, you can't separate one from the other. They are totally combined. So let's start off with our very first guest from San Francisco, the executive director of the San Francisco Gay Men's Course, Chris Verdugo. <laughs> Oh, my. <laughs> and he's strutting in. <laughs> oh, my. Feathers and all. Boa feathers and uh, high kicks. The beautiful Judy Garland singing San Francisco with the beautiful Chris Verdugo. Oh. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. It's I great to be here, Doug. I don't think how long I've known you. 20 years? Oh, it's been too long to tell anyone <laughs> As else. We were twigs. <laughs> As we were twigs. Congrats. You have so much going on right now. Um, let, let's start with talking about the, um, the, the film because you've got yeah. how many awards now have you won for the documentary? I think we're at about 31 Best Documentary Awards, which is, it, it really is outrageous. We never, in our uh, wildest dreams, imagined when we started this journey with uh, Airbnb and the production team there that uh, a year after, almost a year after premiering the film at Tribeca, we would have played at 135 film festivals, won 31 Best Documentary Awards, and um, I think, as I mentioned earlier, MTV slash CBS Viacom purchased the film and so it will be coming to cable and to a, a digital platform in the coming months. Yeah. So I've seen the documentary now twice. I loved it Thank both you. times. And you know, it's more than just the guys singing at venues in the Deep South. Because it's a yep. story of their tour of the Deep South. But really, it's an exploration of the separateness that occurs mm -hmm. when families have LGBT kids or reconciliation or working on the conflict between religion and sexuality. I mean, all these like big issues. Absolutely. Are, and that's, I think, what... Um, it, what our director did so brilliantly was to be able to shine a light and he did that by as you know focusing on three different people within the chorus and really magnifying yeah, putting a magnifying glass on those relationships and the struggles and challenges that they were going through but also um, having a, a, a you know a connection to the south in that we always um, we always thought that there was more there than what we what we actually knew and experienced, and so we, we, we wanted to 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 take the group, the the, the singers, uh, the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir, um, and and have conversations 
And, and I think what we learned in that is that to be heard and, and to be accepted, one must sit back and first listen. Mm. And that's where you'll find the commonality. It was the poet Rumi who said, out beyond ideas of right and wrong, there is a garden. I will meet you there. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, so I think what we learned in that space was when we're willing to just meet someone where they are and they're willing to meet you where you are and you will listen to each other, you find so much more connectedness in the human experience. And it, to me, that was the beauty of the film, that, that we realized that so much, so much of, the, of, uh, you know, of the, the ideas that we make up about other people are just that, ideas we've made up. Right. That's not the reality. Yeah, and, mythology um, on both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you ask gay people about you've been to the South and that people will be saying, well, of course I've been to Atlanta, I've been to New Orleans, I've been to Miami. It's like, okay, now besides the big cities, right. <laughs> how about the rest of the South? The rural yeah, South. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right. And I had a personal experience myself where I, um, in one of our pre-trips where I had to drive from I think it was Jackson, Mississippi to Birmingham, Alabama. And that four and a half hours was illuminating for me all by myself and just seeing the different pieces of, uh, or the different areas between the, the, the two states and the two cities. And um, yeah, it was, I, I, it's, it will sit with me till the day I pass. It was so, uh, such an incredible experience. Yeah. You know, I think that uh, with mythology, there's always some degree or trickle of truth in, in mythology. For example, sure. I think that you know, in the history of the United States, the South primarily has been the strongest opposition to equality, to civil rights, to the equality of women, equality of African Americans. I mean, it has been that. So there's some truth to that absolutely and there is some truth to the promiscuity of gay men you know when i read the other day you know the average heterosexual male has six sexual partners in a lifetime i thought wow for a lot of gay men that's a weekend <laughs> right i mean wow <laughs> so well, first of all let's go back to the heterosexual men and the fact that i do not believe that yeah. at least not my friends <laughs> I, I don't know i think my young producer here is probably uh, he's almost virginist i, I never hear about his dates at all but, uh, and you never win John. <laughs> you see because they don't talk about it well but, played jason but, but there is some degree of truth to, to both of those myths but yet there's so much more. but there's so much more well, you so know, much absolutely more. yeah you know we're, we're uh, and i think this is the other piece of 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 the you know the conversation or one of the pieces of the conversation is we're not just who we sleep with we're not we're not just our religion we're not just what we do in life we are a composite of all of those things so even there even though there may be you know pieces in your life or attributes that you're like oh that kind of rubs a little bit but there are all of these other pieces in your life that you go oh, I can connect with you on this and this and this and that's where we're able to find the commonality right and we do that at Thanksgiving yeah with my my family members I have two siblings who are MAGA people and I just want to kill them. But I mean, I got to sit with them. Oh, yeah. They're that's, my family. Yeah. For Thanksgiving, I go to Australia all by myself. <laughs> <laughs> all right, gang, when we come back, more with Christopher Dugo from the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus here on Channel Q. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. <laughs> I know I'm dating myself. I love the Village People's version of San Francisco. I just love it. <laughs> that is a great song. That Gang, great we're song. talking to Chris Verdugo, executive director of the San Francisco Game Men's Course. Chris, uh, you guys just bought a building in San Francisco, right? We did. Actually, we bought the building about a year ago through the generosity of one of our founding members, Terry Chan. Um, and it is a beautiful Art Deco building, four stories in the middle of the mission. Wow. Four-story building. It's huge. Yeah, it's like 23,000 square feet. Um, and it has a grand rehearsal hall, several large meeting spaces, office space, storage space. So it's the it's the chorus's first permanent home. We have never in 42 years had a permanent home. Um, and, and, and that means a lot as an arts institution in San Francisco. Do any of the choruses have a permanent home? I don't think so. Uh, I, they I know don't. LA I don't doesn't. Think so. I don't think New York does. No, uh, no. We're very fortunate. Yeah. We're very, very fortunate. You raised $9 million? Uh, no, not yet. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, let me explain that. Okay. okay. <laughs> right. um, so we, we launched, uh, we've been in the quiet phase of a capital campaign, and we went public with that campaign last Wednesday. It's a $15 million capital campaign of which we have raised 9.1 million. Got it. And is it for just LGBT arts or all so, arts? Well, it's it's uh, so that's the second piece of it. So in in um, you know in, in actually ascertaining this amazing gift from our donor who purchased well who, who provided the five million dollar leading gift to buy the property, um, we sort of brainstormed and, and tried to identify what was missing in the landscape of LGBTQ arts in our country, and what we identified uh, was really a space, a center where LGBTQ arts and arts or artists and arts organizations could come together, could collaborate, could incubate new works. You know, we call it a home for art and activism. Mm. Um, and, and we have had a, a number of, of performances there by the San Francisco Bay Area Theater Company, or we will. Um, they are a new residency company, um, as well as, you know, hosting Mayor Pete for his uh, June 1st Pride launch and the mayor of San Francisco for her State of the City address. So, um, but ultimately, we are, you know, we will create a center um, that will house a rehearsal space and small performance space for LGBTQ artists and arts organizations from across the country. And it's really essential at this moment. You know this. Arts are just being pushed out of schools. Um, it's, it's almost non-existent. Um, and so part of what we're able to do now by having this space is to expand upon our outreach programs, Rhythm, Reaching Youth Through Music, which is our regional program, as well as um, the It Gets Better tour, which uh, is our national program. And so we'll be able to take aspects of both of those programs and bring them in-house and at least provide music, music education, a space for LGBTQ youth who want to practice their art and activism. So it's really exciting. So I, I know a little bit about your life because you've been a friend for a long time and I know you're Cuban and Puerto Rican uh -huh. from Miami. Yeah. I know you sing baritone because I've heard you sing. <laughs> yeah. Both when you were inebriated sing and, oh <laughs> and in the gay men's course in Los Angeles. You, like many people in our community, have a natural affinity for art, in this case, music. Yeah. Why do you think that LGBT people are so much encumbered in the midst of art, visual art, performing art, musicality, 
You know, I, I think it's different for everyone. I, and I think different people plug into it from different aspects. What I will tell you about me um, that I know is true is that I have been, I, I come from a musical family. I was singing since I was two. My grandfather was playing the guitar in his, you know, Guayabera. Um, and when I got to school, music became my refuge. And that's where I was able to hide, um, so to speak, but also to be able to thrive. It was interesting, right? Because I could explore this creative side of myself, but I could also hide away from the rest of the school community um, so that I didn't have to be seen, really. Mm. I could be, the, the part of me that was seen really was the part of me that was artistic, and then everything else got to hide. And when I got through high school, um, it was music that saved my life because had I not had that foundation in choral music and in piano and in vocal performance, um, you know, I probably wouldn't be here that day, and I don't say that lightly, it, but it's true. That's music did save my life. So when we're able to, you know, to pass that forward and to do this kind of work in in middle and high schools across San Francisco and across the country, really, um, that to me, I, I I see the importance of it. I know it. I've experienced it firsthand. Mm, that's that's really that's beautiful. I know with art and all the arts, there's uh, the, a portion of it is about deconstruction, mm. and then a portion of it is about reconstructing something new and right. innovative. And I think I see that, you see that in all the arts forms. Looking at LGBT people and where we are today, so if we're you know, largely liberated, largely out and open, largely visible, somebody's running for president of the United States, right. it's a U.S. senator here, there, we're, we're kind of out there. We've often used defiance or nonconformity or being different or queer as the basis for you know, the, the reason to be in, in the arts. Mm-hmm. Will we still have that in the future? Absolutely. Yeah. I think we must. And I was having this conversation with a group of executive directors from major gay courses across the country last week. We were talking about this very subject um, and the idea of, you know, this word that's thrown around, uh, well, before Trump. Ooh, I said it. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Uh, Trump, for Trump <laughs> Can you bleep that out? <laughs> um, you know, like this, oh, are we living in a post-gay world? Are we living in a post-racial world? No, we're not living in, in any post-world at all. Um, we're living in a world where we absolutely must use our voices, use our art to create, to continue to push the envelope. Um, you know, it, it's it, we need to be queerer than we've ever been, I think, um, you know, to really hold that space. I mean, not just that, but I think more than ever we need to we, we need to be connecting with other communities whether it's you know um, Black Lives Matter um, um, the API community we need to build um, these collaborations together um, you know so, so that we're stronger uh, it's it's um, it sort of feels like every community is being attacked in one way or another and not just communities but our environment uh, it, it's all it's all coming at us so fast that for me sometimes it just feels overwhelming um, but I find uh, you know I find assurance in knowing that you know we are working together with other members of our community uh, in San Francisco to build something that is greater and that can combat all of this you know negativity that we have coming at us so no we just we need to we need to continue to be quite queer Good. Well said. <laughs> if people want to contribute to the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus or any of the work you're doing in the schools or anything else, where do, where do we direct them? Uh, it's easy. SFGMC.org. Again, that's SFGMC.org, San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. And uh, get to the website and it'll, you know, you can figure it out from there. It's pretty now, easy. you and your new boy toy of 30 days are here for the Grammys, oh right? Oh, my God. I cannot believe you said this. <laughs> Okay, I don't even know his name. It doesn't matter. You're here for the Grammys. I'm sweating. <laughs> sweating. I always make our guests sweat on this show. You're here for the Grammys. Yes, yeah? we are. So it's we can just... see you on TV Sunday, right? I don't see know you. if you 
seeing me, but I am very fortunate to be a part of the Recording Academy. Um, and as a governor, uh, I truly hold that as one of the uh, you know one of the ways that I get to give back to the music community uh, in the Bay Area and across the country. So uh, I don't think you'll see me on a red carpet, but I'll tell you, if I see Lizzo, I'm gonna run her down for a <laughs> selfie, right? right? I'm gonna do some hair toss. I'm gonna check my nails because we're all gonna feel good. Did you ever think the little Cuban boy in Florida would end up being on the board of governors of the Grammys? <laughs> no, I can't. I, sometimes it's it, sometimes it's a lot, but it's a, no. I mean, not sometimes. A lot of times I sit back and wonder about that. Wonder about the incredible life that I have been blessed with, and I think um, that's that's uh, you know I. I stay in gratitude as much as possible. I never would have imagined it, um, you know, but I know it's been a co-creation as well. So, um, and it's, I'll, I'll give you props. It, it's happened because of mentors like you Aww. throughout my life yeah, who, yeah. Have, um, who have really helped me see the potential uh, in what's possible, not just in myself, but in this community. And so uh, I'm very grateful to both serve the chorus and, and serve on the various boards that I do. We met when I was on the board of the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force oh and gosh. you were a staff member. I was. I don't even right. know what I was. And that. then I heard you sing, and I had just joined the gay men's chorus. Was that I when said, I was inebriated? Yes, you were inebriated, <laughs> singing something. And I said, you should come audition. And that was your first entree into a chorus, right? Singing baritone. Uh, singing baritone, In yeah, the gay yeah. men's chorus of L.A. Well, that wasn't my first entree. Oh. I actually, you know, talk, speaking about community, my first entree was when I was 18 years old in Miami, and I had no gay community. I had one, two gay friends, um, and someone told me about the uh, uh, gay men's chorus of South Florida, and so I searched them down, probably through the Yellow Pages at that point. I mean, I don't even know how I did it. Damn runs I don't know. Book. They yeah. weren't even in the Yellow Pages. What am I thinking? Um, I found them, and that became... That became uh, my refuge. Mm. That became my refuge, was that community of singers, that chorus. So I also learned early on how important that was. Yeah, so to go from there to now cutting a ribbon on a $14 million building for numerous arts organizations in, I think, the most artistic city in the country. Oh. Yeah, I love San Francisco. We want to keep it that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thanks for having uh, coming on Thank and you. joining us again, and good luck. And uh, well, I'm going to look for you on the Grammys. I'll be okay. looking for you. See you. There, there's Chris right there. <laughs> right next to Lizzo. <laughs> right next to Lizzo. And security dragging him away from Lizzo. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, gang, when we come back, we'll be talking to the mayor of Palm Springs, the Honorable Jeff Kors, here on Channel. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Incredible Dean Martin singing 1,200 miles from Palm Springs to Texas. And that's how far I feel from my friend Jeff Kors, even though it's only maybe 110 miles between West Hollywood and Palm Springs. Jeff, welcome back to the show. 
Hey, thanks for having me, John. Beautiful day here. Mr. Mayor. I love that. I can call you Mr. Mayor. You can. (laughs) What happened? You guys had a a direct, because I know Sonny Bono was a directly elected mayor, and Ron Oden uh, was a directly elected mayor. You guys changed your form of government? Uh, Yeah, so uh, under the California Voting Rights Act, we had to move to district elections. uh, And as a result of that, when... You need to comply with the California Voting Rights Act due to a history of racially polarized voting, which we had in Palm Springs. In 81 years, we had one Latino and one African-American with 36 percent Latino residents that you can't have any member of a legislative body elected at large. Because the reality is, if you elect the whole government at large, it tends to look like the majority and very few of our government entities in the United States are elected at large. I know you still are, uh, but we are. Congress, Assembly, School Board, we're elected in districts. And as a result of our first district election, we elected our first Latina in our history, in wow. a majority-minority wow. district that we created. So the goal of it was effective in its very first year, and as a result, we will be rotating the mayor, similar to what you do in West Hollywood. That's why, And you're the first. Is there a reason you're the first? Is that because your colleagues voted, a majority of them voted, to make you the first uh, mayor? Um, you know, we set it up so whoever the mayor pro tem is becomes the next mayor. Um, and I'm also the longest-serving council member. I just started my fifth year, John, and I am the longest-serving council member. I cannot years. believe that. Oh, my God. Yes, five, years, five years and you're the senior. I got 20 years and yeah. I'm still number two. <laughs> yeah, so there you have it. Uh, that is amazing. You know, uh, your old friend Chris Verdugo just left the studio. He said to say hello to you. Nice. Yep, and of course, hey, yeah. we all met when we uh, created Equality California back in the early part of this new millennium and to get marriage here in the state of California. And now you went from being a San Francisco lawyer, which is what, what you were when I met you, to mayor yeah. of, I think, one of the most spectacular cities in the nation, uh, the Palm Springs. Well, thank you. It is. It is. It's pretty... It's a pretty wonderful place. I love living here. It's a, such a great community and I mean, just so much every weekend and weekday to do with all the you know, tourism events and parties and beautiful hiking and just incredible environment. You've got so it's a really special place to live. An estimate of about 40% of your population being LGBT. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a good, good estimate. Just looking at you know, data from campaign polling. So registered voters, it's about 40% identify as LGBT. Why? Why is that uh, happening? You know, I think it was a couple things. I think, uh, you know, it was Palm Springs' heyday during, you know, the 50s and 60s and sort of, you know, falling into a little bit of disrepair in the 70s and 80s. And a lot of people moved to the East Valley, especially people who are looking to retire um, and live in gated communities on golf courses and like a lot of places where you have beautiful old spanish and mid-century homes that are in disrepair a lot of lgbt people moved in to buy them when they were really low priced and renovate them and revitalize palm springs and that i think coupled with a lot of people moved to palm springs from major cities in the height of the um AIDS AIDS epidemic, pandemic, yeah. you know who thought they didn't have long to live um, and created a very vibrant um, gay community. Um, and, of course, that changed, and so many people are now thriving. And so I think those two things together really led to it being such a welcoming place for LGBT people. 
Let me ask, uh, your demographics, are you disproportionately 60 and above? Is it is it really a community of uh, senior LGBT, or is it across the entire age spectrum? You know, I think it used to be more seniors, but it really is across the age spectrum. I, You know, we have good friends, you know, in their 20s and 30s, and one of the great things that you're seeing in Palm Springs, two of our five council members are in their early 30s, they're millennials. So... That demographic change is really evident. Palm Springs Unified School District has 25,000 students. So there are a lot of young families, a lot of families, people who work in the tourism industry, which is, you know, 25% of our jobs um, moving here. And due to so many jobs being more mobile due to the Internet, a lot of people move here because they can still buy a house and a pool for what it would cost, you know, to not even buy a studio in some of the other places around the state. So it really has become a much more diverse um, community in so many ways, including in age. Hmm. That's that's interesting. With all the people moving in, I got to tell you, we have so many people from West Hollywood who have relocated to Palm Springs. I think that's true. So many people from San Francisco, from San Diego, all over Los Angeles, all going to Palm Springs. The housing demand has got to be significant. And how are you guys addressing that? Are, Are you building out and out further and further on vacant tracts of land? or Are you going up? Um, you know, there, there are a bunch of new housing projects. Some are, you know, two stories. Some are, you know, on uh, more land that's a little bit more north of the downtown. But one of the real focuses is we need to build more worker housing and bridge housing, you know, for people to be able to get services who are homeless. You know, when, you, when rents and housing costs go up and, you know, housing vouchers from the federal government under the Trump administration go down, you create a real problem, and that's a real focus of ours. Hmm. How, do you guys have plans in place for aging in place? I mean, are you are you a naturally occurring retirement community, a NORC community that that's just naturally based upon all these circumstances you're describing? You just got people that this is going to be the last place they're going to check out. Um, I do think there are a lot of people who moved here with that in mind. You know, we have a lot of friends who moved here after their first career. You know, in their um, some people actually retire, John, when they're 50, unlike us. Um, but people who, after their first career, think they're ready to retire, move to Palm Springs, and then in six months, it's like, now what? And so a lot of people start new businesses, start new nonprofits, get really engaged in their passion, right? They weren't doing their passion necessarily for the first career, but they're doing it for the second career. But I do think a lot of people who move here assume this is going to be their last place they live, you know, for the next 40 or 50 years. And you know, they are looking to buy a one-story house, right, and looking for that future so they can stay. And, you know, we have a bunch of great, you know, assisted living facilities. We have an assisted living LGBT, you know, Stonewall Gardens. We have a new project we're just breaking ground on out loud, which is, um, you know, LGBT housing with, you know, that's going to have a bar and movie theaters and a dog park right in the middle of the city. So there's a lot going on both for LGBT and non-LGBT. And I think what's so special about... Palm Springs for me is, you know, two years ago when Lisa Middleton was elected the first transgender political official in the state of California, which is ridiculous it took that long, but it's just not really an issue anymore. And, you know, we're sort of what we all dreamt about when people live together, work together, volunteer together, socialize together. All the, you know, fears of the unknown go away and everyone gets along and sexual orientation, gender identity just become non-issues. God willing. And I think we're a great model for that, right? I mean, 
I've never been in a place, and I lived in San Francisco, right, for 20-plus years, where it's just not an issue to anyone. That, that's and fanta- that's pretty miraculous. That yeah. is fantastic. Gang, we got to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion with the mayor of Palm Springs, the Honorable Jeff Coors. Thanks for tuning in here on Channel Q. Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. There you have the high lows singing about Palm Springs. Jeff Kors, the mayor of Palm Springs on the line. Jeff, I bet you've never even heard of the high lows, have you? <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> they were a big quartet in the 1950s, the high lows. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that was their song. She's still younger than you, John. Oh, by a year. By a year. Come on now. I'm 48 and you're 47. By a year. <laughs> Jeff, I want to ask you, what's coming up in Palm Springs? Uh, Any film festival, art festivals, LGBT events? Sure, there's so much going on. I mean, we finished the um, International Film Festival. And if anyone hasn't come, you know, book it for next year. It is just an extraordinary 12 days of film. It's so accessible. Uh, Great talking pictures with, you know, some of the people who are nominated for Academy Awards after their films. It's a great event. But February 7th and 8th, we do the Tour to Palm Springs, which is this amazing bike ride and bike shows and all kinds of stuff um, right in the heart of downtown Palm Springs, which is a great event. And then Modernism Week, which has grown from, you know, a week to now being 11 days, uh, starts on the February 13th to 23rd. And just incredible martini parties at historic homes and lectures and double-decker tour buses and tours of just these iconic homes and it's it's really a wonderful wonderful showcase of the modern mid-century architecture that palm springs is known all around the world for people come from all around the world for this event it's really spectacular that is awesome uh, and, and the diner so the diner's coming the diner, up so the, the diner this year will be in its 30th year mariah hansen is hitting the 30-year mark on really what started out as just a girls party into a largest lesbian event in the world a incredible showcase of music and talent. I mean, you think about people she brings in at the start of their careers, um, you know, from Katy Perry and Megan Trainor and Lady Gaga. It's really become an incredible music festival, but we're really excited to celebrate, um, you know, the 30th year of the Dine. And it's a great, another example, John, of, you know, in the 80s, as Palm Springs started becoming more, you know, LGBT friendly, that, you know, both the White Party and the Dine became international events um and the diner for so many you know women who don't live in places like west hollywood or palm springs they come here and they can be free in a way they can't anywhere else and they see you know you know big signs down palm canyon drive welcoming them and stores with signs welcoming them and it's something they don't see when they're coming from alabama or kansas or other places and so it really has become such an important part of people's annual event um in the women's community and we just love having them there and we're so proud of mariah who was on the board of equality california with the two of us who gives so much back to the community in addition 
to what she hosts with this event. So we're excited to help her celebrate her 30th year. That is awesome. And you know, ironically, I, I had a, I had both Mariah and Jeff Sanker on the show last year, and they both described in the early days how the Palm Springs uh, City and Chamber of Commerce didn't want them. They didn't, they didn't want them to be. Uh, but yeah, they, it turned was- out to be the biggest events for the city. You know, it's a big change. And, you know, there was a push at one point when I first moved here in the early 2000s to not allow the white party. And, you know, it really led actually to, you know, Steve Funay, Ron Oden, Ginny Fote galvanizing the gay LGBT community and Ron Oden becoming, you know, the first gay and the first African-American mayor in the city's history. That's amazing. You know, and I'm sure Sonny Bono would have given a thumbs up even. Yeah, um, I don't. I don't guess what he's done. They closed down Spring Break, which brought, you know, thousands of people because he wanted Palm Springs to be quieter. Oh, so really? I didn't. I didn't know that. that. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, but he also started the film festival as a small little international film festival, and look what it's grown to. So, so we want you never a lot know of where people come down on issues. We want a lot of people. We just want you to be quiet. <laughs> that's um, basically it. You know, and there are some. You know. Look, there are people who didn't like the partying around spring break. I think that's changed in Palm Springs over the last couple of decades. Yeah. Jeff, I know that you, because um, I know your history, and you were an ACLU lawyer, and you came out of Chicago, and a, a large, significant part of your life has been dedicated to LGBT liberation. Um, you know, watching the young LGBT community today, uh, I'm, I'm mesmerized by the amount of time I see them face down in their iPhone texting or typing or posting while the world seems to be happening all around them and they're completely out of tune and i just i I, you know i sometimes i wonder where we're going where our technology is taking us as communities of people and i'm not sure whether it's a dystopia or utopia that we're heading for but i i worry about the future of our young lgbts what do you think well you know i mean I see that point, but, you know, we both have common friends who are in their 60s who spend as much time as anyone we know um, on their phone and apps. So I think it spreads around. But think about the difference in our lives you would have had if we had the Internet and access to know that we weren't the only gay person in the world. Think about the connections and the friendships and that are made through you know, social media. Think about people who are in countries like Saudi Arabia where you can be killed for being gay who know there's something else out there. So I even think about the work I've done on Born Perfect, you know, to ban conversion therapy, first with Equality California and then with the National Center for Lesbian Rights. Now, instead of people looking in the phone book the way it used to be and seeing, you know, conversion therapy and, know, you know, how great it was, the first things when you type in anything about, you know, LGBT youth or, you know, changing people's sexual orientation is about how damaging it is. So parents and kids are seeing that. So, yes, there's bad with it. I, I just wanted to counter your side with all the positives for young LGBT people and changing their lives that they have access to this information. Yeah, I think that's a very good point, too. That I, I mean, and it's and, amazing yeah. to me how quickly people can organize using their right. iPhones. Yeah, well, you, We used know, to hand out flyers on the corner of Santa Monica Boulevard and San Vicente. Now right. they're on their phones. Right. You know, it's such a change. And so one thing I want to give you a suggestion, which I just thought of. So, you know, we've done a lot of great legislation in California and Palm Springs and West Hollywood. But, you know, Palm Springs is the only city that has a equal benefits ordinance that's transgender healthcare inclusive. 
And I'd love to see West Hollywood under your leadership bring forward um, the identical ordinance and become the second city to do that. So if I send you that, I think this would be a great thing for you. I'll do that in exchange for a Palm Springs weekend with you and James. You're on. <laughs> okay, man. We got a deal. Okay, we... something actually for people in other cities. It's on our website. You know, it really, you know, in California, we pass laws that ensure that LGBT people, transgender health insurance is all covered. But people in other states don't have that. And an equal benefits ordinance means we won't, as a city, contract with people from those other places. So it helps our local businesses because they're all in compliance already. And we've had businesses from other states say, well, how do we do that? Who have now giving full um, health benefits to their LGBT employees. So it's a way for us to impact all the crap coming out of the Trump administration and the anti-gay LGBT stuff coming in other states by making sure that they're following the same rules as our local businesses do. And if they're not, that our local businesses get those contracts. So it's really a win-win. And the business community was all for it here. I think it's a great idea. It's top of the hour. We got to cut to commercial, Jeff. Okay. Thank you for joining us here. Everyone, go to Palm Springs to see the mayor, Jeff Kors. We'll be yeah, right- come have some fun. I'll have a drink with you. Let's do it. All right. Thanks, gang. Here on Channel Q. Lucy, the Sky with Diamonds, the Beatles. This is the song I picked for our next guest, Lori Lipton, because to me, she is like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Uh, Lori, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Here. Thank you so much, John. I, I got to tell you, I you know I've known you for a while, but mm-hmm. I never really I knew you were an artist, but I never really got into your work until recently. Mm-hmm. I saw Love Bite, and I was take blown away uh, by the amount of what the work you do with the detail. I'm a big fan of. Salvador Dali. Mm-hmm. I think that whole surrealism and the way the let I the mind just flow. Can I you up for a second? Yes, there? yeah. Because I don't consider myself a surrealist. Okay. Um, surrealism is about dream imagery, and although I was a big fan of Salvador Dali in my 20s and stuff, but um, my work is more about expressing emotions and feelings and what's mm. going on. So I would say I'm more like Goya. Oh, I mean, not as yes. good as Goya. I had a show with I Goya. I think you're as good as Goya. I had a show with Goya in London in the Cervantes Institute, mm. and I had top billing. Mm-hmm. I just I just want to put that out there. Yes, and for good reason. <laughs> Gang, if you're listening at home, go to laurielipton.com, L-A-U-R-I-E, Lipton like the T, L-I-P-T-O-N.com, and you'll see the work that we're mm. now talking about. Uh, it. Amazing. There's one. I mean, so many pieces of your work mm. moved me emotionally. One that did, there's an old woman. looks like she's seated with maybe five or six friends who are now skeletons, like ladies who lunch <laughs> in this very Victorian 1920s garb. And I looked at that, and I got emotional because where I went was I miss my friends yeah. who I used to have lunch with because they're all gone. They died. And this woman, I, I, her face was pretty much expressionless, but I, I was so moved by that piece. I did um, Day of the Dead show before it was even fashionable. In fact, I had I was looking for a skeleton to wear for my opening. It was 2001. I couldn't find anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it was... Um, was in I think it was in London that because I lived in London for 26 years and my mother had died and a friend of mine a Spanish friend said let me take you to Mexico to, mm. for the day of the dead festival I think you'll like it and I said no thank you <laughs> no thanks I thought it'd be really depressing mm. and it was the most amazing experience I've ever had you know in a New York Jew you don't say dead 
You know, you don't say, oh, your mother has died. They said, oh, we're so sorry your mother has passed on or your mother isn't suffering anymore. Or someone actually said to me, that's life. Mm. So um, when I went to Mexico and there was death everywhere and everyone's making fun of it and it's a part of, you know, existence and they were picnicking on the, on the, uh, on the graves and talking to their ancestors, I thought, this is so healthy. Mm-hmm. I, you know, so I decided to do a show a New York Jewish black and white Day of the Dead show because you know in Mexico it's all color and, and yes you know. very much so and and I um, that was my first um, experience and then it was so popular I did a couple of more Day of the Dead shows too but it helped to um, uh, emotionally connect with what I was going through with my mother's death mm. is there a, some a life as does every drawing mm-hmm. have a story to it? I mean, is it something reflective of an f- emotion you're going through? Or Well, I usually do themes. Like the one I did with Goya, I did, it was called um, The Sleep of Reason. And that's where Love Bite was from because um, it was a takeoff on Goya's Saturn eating his children. Mm, it yes. Was, yeah. It was a mother eating a baby. A baby's head. Yeah. It looks like she's going to take a bite out of an apple and then the revelation is that it's an infant It's so head. funny. You know, yeah. um, there's a, a documentary film about my obsession with drawing and it premiered at South by Southwest and it was on a big screen and um, the director just suddenly cuts to the image of Love Bite and the entire theater went <gasps> <laughs> It's so good. It I think so that's good. awesome. <laughs> and I think a part of it is because our culture, American culture, yeah. which is a mishmash of cultures, right. there's something about death that mm. we want to avoid or not well, talk it's, about. it's or, failure. I mean, if you get old and die, it's like you're a failure. You have to be young. You have to be successful. You have right. to be healthy. Right. And people, you know, death is an embarrassment. It was really interesting when my mother died, the reactions I got. People were embarrassed. And a lot of people didn't call me or, you know, talk to me because mm. they were afraid afraid of upsetting me or upsetting themselves. It was a very interesting... That's why I did a whole show about it. Hmm. You know, the, the Disney animated feature, Coco, yeah. kind of brought some light into yes. some of this. I yes. think that actually... Because yeah. I'm Mexican-American, right. and I'm very familiar with Dia de los Muertos, and yeah. of course, Hollywood Forever Cemetery yes, does a yes. big event every year. And, and, and our culture, death is just part of I know. life, and we do believe, and we can still communicate, and I still believe my mom nudges me from the beyond every now Thank God my mom doesn't, otherwise I'd be nudged to death. (laughs) (laughs) Or nudged. Nudged or nudged. Nudged to death. Nudge. But I, I mean, just because we're we're separated for the moment, yeah. you know, by time and space, doesn't mean that the love isn't right. still there. It's still right. there, yeah. And 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 so I think that's what what's taught, at least culturally, for us. But um, let me ask you about one of the other pieces. There's a piece that kind of looks like Donald Trump without I a half a, a face. I did a whole show called Post Truth that hasn't been shown yet, actually. Ah. When. Uh, Twitler, I don't even want to say his name. When Twitler got elected, I, I needed to process the emotion. So I did a huge drawing called Post Truth. It's like five foot by nine foot. Mm. And it took me about five months to do. Five months? Yeah. yeah. The level of detail in your drawing is so amazing to me. Is this the one where his mouth is just... Yes. Yes, you're looking at it now, Jay? Yeah. 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 Isn't that amazing? The level of like S- intricate detail. Detail. So much detail. It, it's so amazing. And it's and about the depth. media. Um, also, there's... Um, microphones. Uh, microphones, but it's also... I've hidden all over the place, like um, digital uh, codes that say everything I say is a lie. And, I mean, it's you got... Oh. 
so a guy bought my work and five years later he called me up and went oh my god I saw somebody under the table just now <laughs> <laughs> and more will be revealed <laughs> gang we had to break when we come back we're talking to Lori Lipton about her incredible artistry here on Channel Q I picked the song Dreamboat Annie for you also, by heart, uh, the lovely Dreamboat Annie, um, because a lot of your, uh, we're talking to Lori Lipton gang, an incredible lesbian artist, <laughs> uh, not surrealism, however, more modernism. I, I'm, I, I guess it's symbolism. I guess mm. there's no real word for it as yet. Maybe it's just Liptonism. I have no idea. I like that. I'll call, I'll call it Liptonism. I'll call that. Um, a lot of these, uh, the drawings that you make seem to me dreamlike. Uh, uh, and some very dark mm. dreams. And, and so, uh, I mean, how do you come up with an idea? Is it just like something that festers in your brain? That Festering is a good word, but no. Um, I, I think in images, and I thought that was normal. And my mother said, no, darling, people think in words. <laughs> but I actually think in images. So when I get an emotion or some kind of thought, it comes up to me in a whole image. Hmm. So I'm always at least 150 images behind myself. I have to, I write them down. I write the titles down as I'm drawing. Hmm. So I've never, I better not say this because God will give, will curse me or something, but <laughs> I've never had blocks or any of any kind. I, I can't work fast enough, really. Hmm. You've been drawing since you were how old? About four. Four. So only about 10 years. <laughs> Since you were four years old. Yes, yeah, so that's like six over 60 years exclusively drawing. Yeah. So I'm good. I, I saw the documentary, and of course, one of the things in the documentary is your, your child's yeah. picture book. I mean, you have your early drawings mm. as a child. And I was looking at it, and you, you talked about how your parents were so proud, but mm. other relatives and friends were like, what is going on with your little girl? This is like grotesque and macabre. What, what is this? Right? Instead of sectioning me, they praised me, which is very unusual for Jewish parents. Yeah, yeah but they were socialists, I think. Jewish socialists? Is well, that right? atheists. They weren't. Either. I'm only Jewish by culture. I uh. only knew I was Jewish because my grandma said, oi, gewalt, a lot. Because <laughs> there was no religion in the house whatsoever. Hmm. What... Um, I'm gonna. I, I want to approach this delicately, but I know right. some of your work was inspired by a traumatic incident right. that happened to you as a child. Right. Well, it wasn't inspired. It's how I um, um, integrated it. I always drew. I was always very good at drawing, as all children are, really. But then I had um, a traumatic. Um, I was sexually molested by a man who escaped from an insane asylum. Mm. It sounds like a gothic novel. Like American Horror Story yeah, totally. episode. Yeah. And I didn't really understand what had happened. I knew it was bad, but my mother's reaction to it was the was the trauma really. Mm. She really she had a nervous breakdown and tried to kill herself later. Oh no. And so all this stuff was whirling around me. I, I went from Disneyland to, you know, Edgar Allan Poe Land or whatever. It was like immediate, like total um, a breakdown of my world so I started drawing mm. a lot because I couldn't put words to what I was feeling and it seemed to help me assimilate what was going on mm. and then I was allowed I wasn't censored at all because my parents could see it was helping me mm. so I was allowed to do the most horrific amazing drawings for a child you know a child doing this stuff is very disturbing right. but I was able to just draw out all these 
incredibly strong feelings whirling around inside of me. And I've done that ever since. Hmm. You know, some of the drawings around Dante's Inferno right. very much resemble your work resembles portions of what I've seen right. in the the portrayal of hell or the different levels well, of hell. Well, also, Dante was dealing with what was going on in his world at the time, and there's different levels or what, and that's exactly what I'm doing, too. I am dealing with what's happening in our world at the time, and not only how it's affecting me, but how it's affecting you know, the society around me, which affects me, too. You and I are about the same age, and I think a lot of young people don't appreciate that Mm. there was a time in this country we were taught duck and cover. Right. That we were with the threat of nuclear war. Well, now it's uh, shelter in place. Mm, Yeah, you're right. That's actually a very good point for active shooters. Yeah, it's horrible. Which is more likely than a nuclear bomb dropping on us. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and so some of your work, it seems like you take some of these dark images and you take them apart and then you reassemble them in different ways well the thing is i've always been affected by powerful imagery and powerful music and powerful movies when i go into a museum i want to see something that speaks to me Mm. about what's going on not just about my time but about being human and alive Mm. and you know facing death whatever so those are the things that really like bruegel like like Goya, you know, those things. So that's what I want to give back. I want to give back. If you're looking at my work, I want you to go, oh, my God. I don't want you to go, oh, that's pretty. Yeah, No, that, oh, was, not my, that was not my experience. <laughs> or, or, that's a nice polka dot. I mean, I just know. I mean, those things are lovely and nice and decorative, but I want my art, I want my music, and I want my films to be powerful. Mm. Being alive is a powerful experience. Mm. I want to reflect it in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Have you seen Moulin Rouge? The yes. Okay. The uh, Roxanne Tango, right. to me, is one of the most brilliantly composed musical moments right. in a musical because it is about jealous, jealousy, mm. anger, rage mm. captured in dance and musicality. Right. And, and, and if you've ever felt jealousy, and I think mm-hmm. most of us have, it's a human emotion, that song is, can just pull out so much feeling. Mm. And, and that's, I think, what you're art does you know Uh, i was not uh involved with any sexual molestation but i have felt some of those feelings uh in other life experiences other trauma that happened being a child is traumatic i mean so confusing and Mm -hmm. you know full of fear and it's interesting you know i always ask myself when i'm in a museum what makes a masterpiece you know art is very very subjective Mm. but isn't it interesting like i when you i went to florence and i saw michelangelo's david Uh, and he could convey to me a feeling, an amazing feeling, centuries later, century later, I'm this woman looking up at Michelangelo's David, and I am filled with awe, and I'm filled with, it's like seeing a a piece of God. Hmm. A good art is like a piece of God. Good music, good film, good books are like pieces of God. Right. Gothic architecture was about reaching towards the heavens. That's what our, but Gothic art kind of explored, I think, a lot of darker themes right. around good and bad, good and evil, well, they divinity. They were trying to scare the populace. They did a good job. In, into behaving. <laughs> they did a good job. <laughs> they did a good job, right? Uh, and, and so, I, I, you know, one of your pieces uh, of art has like a, what looks like a 50s housewife, mm-hmm. uh, like almost a Lucille Ball character in a kitchen, but it is the most disturbing, un 
unsettling image and there's just something about it that makes me want to stare at it longer to figure out a, why I'm feeling discomfort. I did a couple of those and they're like six foot by eight foot. Oh, they're wow. huge. And, you know, I grew up in black and white TV with Ania Bryant and mm. the whole the housewives with the pointy, you know, bras. Yeah, yeah. And they're all having fabulous times in this technological age of, you know, cooking and cleaning in there, you know, and... Uh, so I've overdone the technology. I've like they're dying in the technology. Mm, you know, yeah. I've taken it to the nth degree. Yeah. <laughs> you have a website, right? Yes. LoriLipton.com. LoriLipton.com, and I'm on Instagram at LoriLiptonDrawings. Yeah. So, gang, if you're listening. Take a few minutes, go to this website. You'll see the incredible art that we're all talking about today. It's extraordinary. It's so nice having you. Oh, thank you. Chatting John, on the show, Lori. I mean, I'd love to, And I'm going to take you up. I would love to bring a couple of lesbian friends to come see yes, your please. work. Yes, you're all about having <laughs> lesbians in your world. I know. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Gang, when we come back, we'll be talking to Equality California about the upcoming U.S. Census and why it matters to you. Thanks for tuning in here on Channel Q. Welcome back, gang. Wow, we've just had an incredible day with various people all about art. It's been an art, art, art focus. But back to reality because 2020, every 10 years, it's time for the U.S. Census. And we're very fortunate to have Beatrice Velasquez here from Equality California. Beatrice, welcome to the show. Hi, yeah. thank you for having me. Yay, welcome. And uh, I think a lot of people don't understand why the census, why do I care? I just want to be left alone. Don't right. bother me. I don't want to fill out a form. Right. What, what would you say? Well, I can absolutely understand that because it's not an annual thing. It's not like voting. It's not something that is front of mind all the time. It happens every 10 years. But um, what the census does is that it counts every single living person in the United States, regardless of immigration status, regardless whether they have a home or not. And what that does is that it does two major things. It helps with representation in government, which obviously our community really, really needs right now. And it also helps the distribution of federal funds for uh, programs within our communities. So that means money for schools, for roads, for um, health, for education. So all those things which are so important for so many communities. Hmm. Now, if somebody is fearful because they're undocumented, right. you say, and, and, and basically hidden, uh, and probably with good reason from the Trump administration. They've not really been kind to DACA recipients or others. Right. I mean, should people be fearful if they're not uh, here legally or undocumented? Should they be fearful of the census? No. As a matter of fact, um, none of the information that is collected in the census can be shared with any other agency. So it won't be shared with ICE. It won't be shared with Homeland Security. It's safe. It doesn't even ask about your citizenship. It doesn't ask about your immigration status. It's only... Um, about 10 questions so it's just getting some basic information like your name your date of birth so they can tell you know uh, ages um, uh, how many how many people live in your home and then each of them have a, a, a place to, to answer on the census mm. so um, no none of that information will be shared and it's actually illegal for any census taker or any census worker to share that information. So your information is protected. Now, I know that the Trump administration tried to include a question about status, yes. your citizenship status, but the Supreme Court told them no. 
Right. Wilbur Ross told Wilbur Ross and Trump, no, you cannot ask about right. that. Right. And that is such a such a win for the census, for all of our different communities, all of our marginalized and vulnerable communities, because if we want that accurate count, people have to feel comfortable right. coming forward, filling it out, and essentially getting what what our communities deserve. Because what we do know is that for especially for California, for every person that fills out the census, that means two thousand dollars in federal funding coming back into our communities mm. so it's imperative that that happens and then going back to representation uh, it also helps with uh, representation in government talks about how many seats we get so um, that's important we want to be heard we want our voices heard and that's how we do it is through the census um, in in doing a lot of, of work with the census and meeting different people I have run into scholars who have actually said you know, voting is important. It's extremely important. Everybody wants to register to vote who can. But in a lot of ways, the census is more important because it happens every 10 years. So whatever numbers and whatever data we get this time, it won't be changed until 2030. So wow. it's important that we get it yeah. correct. Is there a, still a short form and a long form on the census? Some people are asked to do the longer form. Is that where sexual orientation and gender identity are contained, or are there no questions about that? So there is no specific question about gender identity or sexual orientation, but what there is, and this is the first time that this has happened, is that there is a question that will allow you to identify a relationship within your household as same sex, whether married or unmarried. Mm. So that is where you you can yeah. be counted. If you're in a relationship as ex- domestic exactly. partners or as married. Do- mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can choose whether it's a unmarried domestic partnership, it could be same sex, or a marriage. Yeah. I know one of the big issues, of course, is 435 seats in the Congress, mm-hmm. and, they, they, and this is in the Constitution, that every 10 years we've got to count our people. You have to go all the way back. Even, even Joseph and Mary had to go back to Bethlehem <laughs> to be counted during the time of King Herod. This has been going on for thousands of years. But uh, some states may lose a seat. California today has 53 seats in Congress, but right. because our population has been shrinking and Arizona and Texas have been and on the increase, mm-hmm. we may lose a seat in California to Texas or Arizona, right? Right, and that is a, a, a very real um, fear, and that's a very real thing that can happen. And the thing about California is that Los Angeles County specifically is the hardest county to count because we are home to so many uh, what are being called hard-to-count communities. Mm. That includes uh, immigrant po- population, African-Americans, um, renters, people who are experiencing homelessness, and the LGBTQ population. Mm. And um, what is also unique about uh, the LGBTQ population is we do not just inhabit one space. We have... Um, LGBTQ immigrants, we have LGBTQ people of color, we have LGBTQ people who are renters. So even more so important to be counted so that we do not lose our representation. Mm. Um, there, There is always this fear of an undercount, especially now. So it is absolutely imperative that everyone does come out and everyone does fill out that form. And they're they're trying to make it a lot easier and less invasive. I know that uh, for people who have filled it out in the past, they say, oh, I don't want people knocking on my doors. I don't want someone talking to me. Well, now you can do it online. Oh, that's great. You can do it on your phone. You know, you can do it in that private 
space. Yeah. Um, when does it start? When does the process start? So in mid March, uh, the government is going to start sending out the the postcards that have the information about the census. As soon as you get that, and as soon as the website goes live, which will be in March, you can actually do it. the The day that is being targeted is April 1st. Mm. That's kind of a ceremonial day because you can do it anytime as soon as you get that that form. You can do it anytime. But April 1st is the day that we are targeting as, hey, everyone, let's come together, either make sure that you have already done it or do it now, reach out to people, you know, talk to your neighbors, talk to your friends, let them know this is the day to do it. Mm. Um, also in March, which is interesting, this is a brand new thing that is happening with the census, is um, there are going to be kiosks in different um different places, different public places, including libraries, um, and and some schools have actually signed up to host a kiosk. And Equality California, we signed up to um, partner with some uh, community-based organizations throughout the state um, to host kiosks. So we will be having 10 kiosks throughout California in Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco, Sacramento, Mm. Visalia, and we are working to get um, to to finalize a few places in Napa and um, some other locations in in California, and uh, our partners are all LGBTQ organizations and allies. So uh, it's it's in order to have that sort of comfort and awesome. have people who can understand you. You guys have information on the census on the website. Equality California have information on this. We do, and we are constantly updating. Right, it's eqca.org. Eqca.org. Got it. Got it. I want to thank Beatrice uh, for coming by today and talking about the census. Maybe we can have you come back in March again when we get closer to the counting. Absolutely, yeah. we would love to, yeah. and just fill people in and let them know, you know, how they can access everything. Yeah, and maybe bring somebody who's actually done it to talk about. About how easy it was, right? right? <laughs> Less right. than 10 minutes. All right. Gang, when we come back, concluding remarks here on the Channel Q. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back, gang. we got just a few concluding remarks here. And, of course, we're welcome. To, always happy to have the extraordinary Jared Hill pop by and tell us a little bit about his upcoming extraordinary show. Extraordinary is yeah. a lot of pressure to put on me no. as I'm just getting here. Oh, you're so <laughs> wonderful. No, yeah, thank you so much. I love that you're smart. Well, like, I try. Like pretty is, you know, dime a dozen. <laughs> smart thank and you. pretty is thank you. <laughs> You're so sweet. Thank you. No, I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here. We've got uh, a big show today. We have a big announcement coming up on our show a little bit later on um, that I'm excited about. So we'll be doing that. Um, it's been impeachment all week. Yeah. And like uh, you and I were just saying, like, I'm so exhausted with the impeachment because yeah. I just feel like it's hours and hours and hours on end for... For what end? Like I don't know what they're going to quit him. I just hope that there's a bigger game of chess going on, and I some certainly of these hope so. Senators that are going to vote to support the president that are vulnerable, yeah, and they cost them their seats. You, you know, know, I am looking at it from that perspective and hoping that there will be some kind of value that comes out of all of these hours that the House managers are spending in the Senate, and I, I do. I, I do think to myself, I tweeted about this the other day, like, I feel like we're watching what we knew as America crumble in front of our eyes in the Senate. Mm. And it's, I, I hate to say that and sound overdramatic, but like, if Donald Trump will be allowed to get away with this, and like, and I, I thought this right after they, you know, did all those votes on no amendments, no witnesses, no documents and all that. And I remember thinking like, if Donald Trump can get away with this in such a blatant ridiculous way that they're not even going to listen to witnesses, right. they're not even going to look at, at documents or evidence, 
Donald Trump can get away with anything. Yeah, because well, and he always has. And his he whole always life. that's been his, his whole life. life. And it, that's what's so frustrating is like this man, this white, rich, powerful man who was born into privilege and has been given all this power. Like this is his whole life. Yeah, he's been able to do whatever he wants with very little consequence and nothing like substantive. Right, even like going bankrupt six times, like never really hurt him. And so to watch this man get away with this, it, it says to me that he is. He like in a in a in a superhero movie like where the villain does something and they get away with it and they become a bigger supervillain. Yeah, that is how I imagine yeah. Donald Trump is going to be after an impeachment and then possibly getting reelected. Don't even say that. You know what I Don't mean? Don't even like, suggest it's, that. It's absolutely like it's it's horrifying to think because like who is going to tell him no? Well, you know, I have this belief that he's going to lose in November. I certainly And hope. I hope it costs them the Senate. And then if the Republicans are out of power in the House, the Senate, and the White House, yeah. hopefully they'll say, oh, maybe we shouldn't have jumped behind that con man so Well, but much. we thought that after George W. Bush, right? Yeah, like, yeah. we thought that after, like, after he tanked the economy, yeah. had the lowest approval rating yeah, of any yeah. outgoing yeah, president, yeah. and you thought, like, oh, maybe they won't make these kinds of mistakes again. And then, like, their next candidate was... John John McCain and Sarah Palin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Of course they lost that. And they, they lost, lost Mitt that. Romney. Right, but right. then they did like this post-mortem, I can't remember what they called it, uh, like autopsy is what they called it, right? Where they were looking at like, what, what did we do wrong and blah, blah, blah. And I always said, Republicans would would have a lot easier time finding black and brown folks if they weren't so racist. <laughs> there, there is that. You know what I mean? Because like <laughs> black and brown people tend to be rather conservative yeah. religiously. And their family and structure. Fiscally. And yeah, like yeah. Republicans could be so black and brown yeah, if they yeah. were not so racist. And again, want to be clear, being a Republican does not make you a racist, but if you're a racist, you're probably a Republican, yeah, right? Like, yeah. and, and I mean, that's a Bill Maher thought. That's not even original to me. Don't want anyone saying I plagiarized anyone. But like, <laughs> but like, I, I, it just, it, it really irks me to continue to see these, these senators just kind of sit there, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, well, we'll be voting here any days now. Like, it's just, it's mind-blowing to me that John Bolton is willing to testify. I'm like, I know, like, but he's going to no. write a book. But he's going to write a book about Well, it. like, what good is that going to do us when it comes out next year? Yeah. You know what I mean? And, like, what good is it going to do us if Mick Mulvaney doesn't testify? What good does it do us? And I feel like I, what I would love to see the House do, and I could go on about this all day, so please tell me to shut the hell up. <laughs> but, like, I feel like if they're not going to bring him to testify during the middle of this impeachment um trial if i were nancy pelosi i would call john bolton to come testify while in the senate this this trial is going on i would have him testifying in the house they should because the american people won't be able to recognize the distinction between the two and they can at least hear his testimony yeah yeah so i mean what's frustrating to me is that a lot of the MAGA hats people are like well i don't watch it because i know the president uh, didn't do this yeah i'm not even willing to open their minds to the possibility that this guy's a con well and i i don't know if i talked about this on your show last week but i want to say last week on our show they all kind of blur together at this point i don't remember what day it was but we had on a man from politico who talked about how he's their oj yeah yeah and like i hear he is our oj and it makes my mind explode like mm. he is your oj like the people that supported oj simpson were black folks who were excited to see a black man get away with something in the court system mind you problematic because oj simpson's pro- most likely guilty right but like of, of like a double murder but like 
you're saying Donald Trump is analogous to this double murderer. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. and like, when were rich white men? We all know this country wasn't built for them. Yeah. You know, like, when are they going to get a break? It's just like he is our OJ. Just made my mind explode. Oh, but anyway, I bet, I bet it will. Yeah. Yeah, I it's ridiculous. It so, oh my god, I, I, my skin is crawling as I think about impeachment. It'll be interesting. The Iowa caucus is coming up, the New Hampshire primary, yeah. and and where we end up. I, I, I gotta tell you, I told you this last week in a secret, but I'm. Looking at Michael Bloomberg again, yeah. thinking well, he can beat the Trump. So yesterday on our show, we talked to Alex Seitzwall from NBC News, and he did this whole write-up on uh, Michael Bloomberg saying how he's running this unusual campaign, and people are saying, like, oh, he can't win like that. And it's like, well, no one's tried to win like this, right? right? And so he's talking about the ways that Michael Bloomberg is really investing a lot of money in, in these Super Tuesday states, and how in a national poll, Michael Bloomberg just came up to number four, yeah. which is you know kind of surprising. Yeah. I would say it's really surprising, honestly. And so that's been an interesting thing to watch. But Alex was also telling us how, um, even though Joe Biden is the front runner there in Iowa, Joe Biden's rallies have like dozens of people at them or maybe 100 people at them. Pete Buttigieg has 1,200 people showing up. Right, right. And so I keep saying, like, what does that say about enthusiasm, right? Like, I think people are like, oh, sure, I'll vote for my for Joe Biden. Oh, all right. He's there. More to be revealed. Gang, yeah. that's it for the sidebar. Stay tuned, though, for Drop the Subject coming up next. Talk to you all next week. Have a great weekend.